Keith is here. Excellent. Keith, I'm going to keep you uh, muted for one minute. I'm going to silence your voice. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just while I give this uh, quick introduction. Um, this is Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a uh, writer and podcaster. Uh, I have a newsletter, too, also called Single-Minded, jessesingle.substack.com. Uh, you might want to check out. And... Um, yeah, I've been saying for a while I want to get more guests. Uh, I like doing just sort of the freeform Q&A, but I, I do think this could be a useful platform just to like bring smart people on and allow you to pepper them with questions. So I'm pleased today to be joined by uh, Keith is a professor at Stanford University um, who chaired the recent Stanford Lancet Con Commission on the North American Opioid Crisis, which came out early this month. Earlier this month, uh, in addition to having done a lot of other cool stuff, he was sort of too modest to let me do a super long bio. He was a senior policy advisor at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy under President Obama. Uh, so Keith is an expert on addiction and mental health, and we're going to talk for a bit. Uh, I've got some questions for him, and then I open it up for any questions you have about the opioid epidemic or addiction. One very, very important note, uh, Keith cannot answer any questions you have about like personal situations you or your loved ones are going through with regard to addiction. Uh, unfortunately, if you are, I'm sorry, uh, that sucks. It is terrible. It can be terrible. But uh, for those seeking addiction care, he recommends findtreatment.samhsa.gov slash locator, samhsa, S-A-M. So findtreatment.samhsa.gov slash locator. That being said, I will unmute Keith. Keith, did I forget anything? Oh, Keith, you also, um, you might have a little mic with a red thing uh, going through it on the bottom right of your screen. You're just going to want to hit that to unmute yourself. Okay. There Am we I go. All right. Yeah. Sorry, everyone, for my technical uh, incompetence. I've never used this platform before. Thanks for having me, Jesse. And uh, that was a nice introduction. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, well, thank you for coming on. So I, I, I read this report uh, you guys put out, and it, it's pretty comprehensive, and it covers an incredibly complicated and multifaceted subject. Um, I, I don't think it necessarily makes sense to try to sum up or describe the whole thing, especially because you guys have posted some helpful summary materials um, sort of alongside the main report, and people can seek out the level of detail they want. So I'm just going to ask you a few questions, um, sure. and we'll see how many people jump in the queue, and then we'll try to give over as much time to audience questions as possible. So you guys, feel free to jump in the queue. But um, uh, you guys write that at the time the opioid crisis was first emerging, opioid manufacturers, they sort of donated a small fortune, I mean, a small percentage of their profits, but a small fortune to all these different respectable causes and institutions. And those donations, quote, secured goodwill and increased the credibility of the industry's message that it was a selfless healer pushing back against cruel anti-opioid prejudices. That's sort of an unbelievable sentence to read in light of everything that's happened then. Could you just talk a little bit about how they were able to pull that off and, and catch so many, you know, critical minded people so flat footed? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to remember what it was like back then in, in the 1990s. But you had a huge number of people in pain being poorly taken care of, which unfortunately, by the way, is still true. But it was true then. And second, you had revulsion at the response to crack cocaine. So there were a lot of people feeling, look, anything the U.S. does to try to control drugs is abusive and racist and nasty. 
Um, so those two forces together dovetailed with a really, you know, sociopathic but brilliant um, effort to co-opt uh, stakeholders, give money at the right events, befriend the right journalists, fund stand-up sort of fake uh, patient uh, advocacy groups, and say, look, you know, um, let's, you know, let's give us more, more, more drugs, makes things better. It will help all these people in pain who could be against that. And, you know, it worked pretty well. They got, they got their way uh, culturally. They also got their way at a lot of regulatory agencies and a lot of, you know, medical boards and people who are supposed to be protecting us uh, failed to do so. And it has taken, you know, the better part of 20 years for people to wake up and realize that, um, you know, this was uh, starting the worst opioid epidemic in history of the United States. The um, it, your report notes that this is different from prior drug crises because it reflects quote substantial failures within the corporate sector, regulatory and legislative bodies, the medical profession, and healthcare systems. For like, how do you sort of even start to grasp the level of like institutional failure here? What 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 has learning about this taught you about like how institutions work and and how broken they can be? Yeah, I mean it's very. You know, important that we do hold the companies accountable, companies like Purdue Pharma and Johnson and Teva. Um, but it would be a mistake to say these bad people came in. They, they and, um, you know, despite our brilliant efforts, somehow managed to get us all to go along with it. They exploited pretty big holes uh, in the regulatory system, like just just as an example. I mean, uh, the the official at the FDA who approved OxyContin and was approved a label that said it was less addictive uh, a year later was working at purdue pharma at triple his federal salary uh, and you can still do things like that you can switch sides like that um, they splashed a lot of money on universities and 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 uh, professional associations that started to teach uh, pain management in the way that uh, the companies preferred that was a failure um, they hired uh, opinion leaders who didn't disclose their payments, who would give talks to their colleagues and say, hey, look, you know, these are really great. It's just my independent scientific judgment without revealing the fact that they were getting really big checks from the industry. And the fact that that wasn't required and those people weren't held accountable was a failure in medicine and a failure in academia. So there's there's really that's going on. And one of the key points of the commission is some people say, why are you going rehashing the opioid pills when now the deaths are so focused in fentanyl. And it's because this exact same game plan would work again perfectly if you wanted to do it with benzodiazepines or stimulants, or now we have a ketamine product approved. Maybe in the future we'll have an MDMA product approved. So that's why you need to, to learn from what happened to patch the holes so that we aren't, you know, 10 years from now dealing with a crisis out of the healthcare system of a different type of addictive medication. So it's just this endless push-pull where, like, as drugs get better and as some genuinely miraculous drugs come to market, we're just going to have to deal with versions of this. So, I mean, obviously not as bad necessarily, but the same lessons will matter again and again, it sounds like. That's right. And and it, and it is important to note, and the commission makes a really big point of this, it's not that opioids are bad. They're terrific. I worked in hospitals here for 10 years. You know, opioids are magic in certain situations. We have great pain medicine docs on the commission who could say all the people who've been helped by them. So you have to allow them in somehow. But at the same time, you have to regulate in the fashion that is realistic. They have tremendous potential for harm, too. And we screwed that up. Uh, you know, as a society, we sort of forgot, we, we lost sense of the balance, you know, prescribing increased 400% in 11 years. 
At the end of it, the U.S. and Canada were writing one opioid prescription per adult in those entire countries. That's so, true. yeah, it really is just losing, losing all sense of protection. And there's no parallel. If you look at the rest of the world, including com- countries that have um, older populations than us and therefore more pain, no one is near us or Canada. So we just, uh, you know, we, we got taken for a ride, but we let ourselves be taken for a ride. And that's that's why we're suffering. There was this really depressing uh, paragraph or two where you talked about how the first wave of the opioid crisis hit white and indigenous people harder, I think, in both countries. And in in Canada, it was it was because of these so-called fly-in doctors where there's all these indigenous communities where their only access to medical care is doctors who fly in. So they would just basically just fly in, not really be invested in patients, and just drop some pills on them, and that was that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, Race has a huge impact on how we understand drugs and how we treat people who have drug problems and also has impact on how pain medicines are prescribed. So, you know, we note in the commission, like, you know, racist beliefs that that African-Americans are somehow more resistant to pain led them to get less opioid pain medication than they should have. Whereas in Canada, you had the situation you described where people, you know, who, who are on, uh, you know, their own lands, their lower income, they don't have a lot of resources. And then people come in, you know, write these pills and then fly out. You know, if that had happened in, you know, Toronto or something, it wouldn't have been tolerated, but because that is a, you know, a press group, it was, and the cost was uh, enormous, continues to be enormous. The, the astroturfing here, it seemed like was, was pretty crazy, even by the standards of astroturfing. So, so you had groups with, this isn't an exact name, but like patients for pain relief or whatever that would do advocacy and, and have as their front, you know, medical patients and people living with chronic pain, but then 85 or up to 85 or 90 percent of their funding sometimes came straight from the pharmaceutical industry. Correct. And in fact, in the in the papers that have come out in disclosure, like Purdue Pharma, there's a remarkable exchange with the Purdue Pharma executive saying to this group, um, hey, you guys don't want us on our board. Well, you wouldn't exist without us. So we're going to be <laughs> on your board. <laughs> like, what choice do you have? Right. Yeah. And, and, and this is not unique to the opioid arena. I mean, a, a huge number of patient activist groups are funded by pharmaceuticals and medical device industry. Sometimes it's three, four, five percent of their budget. So who cares? You know, they, have a, they, they can accept that. But when it gets to be, you know, almost all your budget and you're also coordinating messaging and talking to them all the time, it is a form of fraud. And we actually suggest it be defined as fraud, sort of like it's fraudulent to buy positive reviews of your product or book, like on Amazon, have people run it because it sort of fools the public into thinking this product has a much stronger base. People love this product more than they do. You could think of uh, uh, these AstroTurf groups as as the same sort of thing. It's creating the false impression that there's just this love of Oxycontin in the country um, and that, you know, they they want more, 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 less, less. uh, constraints on it. And that's not, in fact, what the situation was. Uh, there's, um, whenever this debate comes up, there's a subset of experts and activists who, um, they, they don't deny that the uh, opioid industry engaged in egregious acts of wrongdoing, but they're worried about the potential of a crackdown. Um, there's, by the way, there's a scratchy noise on your mic. I don't know if there's, if that's something visible. It could just be the programs producing it, FYI. Um they're worried about the potential of a crackdown causing great harm to people with chronic pain who who need these medicines. Um, how do you find the right balance like in, in responding to this disaster? That's a good question. So I've moved my phone a bit. Does this sound yeah, better? Yeah, that's much better, yeah. Okay, terrific. Um, yeah, we, we, we focus the seven domains in the, in the recommendations, and the second one is entirely about the management of pain. 
and a lot of us worked on the national pain strategy that was developed at the end of the Obama administration, which which included this specific point that, you know, you need to take pain seriously. People have a right to good medications. But it's different than saying everybody who's in pain should be in opioids. That is definitely not true. Um, but they clearly have their place, particularly with acute pain, but also sometimes with chronic pain. And um, it's, it's really important never to lose the, the sense of balance that they are dangerous and they can also be highly beneficial. Um, it's also worth noting that there are, according to one of my colleagues, Dr. Sean Mackey, who's an expert in pain medicine, 200 non-opioid medications that can be used in pain that we also need to have applied more by doctors. And, and that's part of a matter of training them better and managing pain so they know that it's not the only option is to give somebody Vicodin, plenty of other things. Yeah. Um, there's just frequently I, I obviously have an interest in sort of like zombie studies that won't die. And there's this frequently touted claim among proponents of marijuana decriminalization, legalization. And, and those are causes I'm in favor of, to be clear. Um, but uh, you guys embedded a photo of this one billboard where it says states that legalized marijuana had 25 percent fewer opioid related deaths. If that were true, that's like the sort of effect size you just social scientists dream of or, or medical, that, that would be incredible when you think about how many deaths that would be. But that's not true. Like, you just walk us through like how that caught yeah. on. Yeah. So, um, you know, first off, this is a, a correlation. And second, it's an ecological correlation. So it's not a correlation at the individual level. It doesn't mean that and in those states, people who used cannabis had lower rates of overdose. It meant the state as a whole did. And the states that early on legalized were different in lots of ways. Like, you know, they had better healthcare systems. They were more likely to have naloxone, better ambulance services. There were a lot of other factors involved. And when Chelsea Shover, who's a, a professor at UCLA and was on our commission, went back and extended that study uh, using the, the same methods, exactly, not similar, exactly the same, and carried it forward another seven years, it actually, the correlation reversed in the other direction so that states with medical cannabis actually have more opioid overdoses. Now, unlike, because she's got integrity, unlike the, the, uh, the, the, how the first one was spun, she didn't say, and therefore that proves cannabis. <laughs> right, causes <laughs> more opioid, yeah. This is just a ecological correlation. It floats this way and that way. Do not, do not bet the farm in this. And by the way, the, the, the harms of, of that campaign shouldn't be underestimated. I, I have, big people who I've talked to on the phone who are addicted to heroin to get naloxone and had them say, I, I can't overdose. I smoke cannabis. I smoke marijuana. It will protect me. They really think that it offers like that kind of protection. They see it in the billboards. They hear science has proved it, you know, and, and it just drives me insane, you know, um, because, you know, I want them to get good care. And it also bothers me that some of these medical cannabis uh, Companies hold themselves out and say, get off your Suboxone and get on to cannabis. It's like, well, Suboxone is FDA approved. If you're on it, your risk of death drops by at least half. Um, you know, you should not just jump off it onto cannabis. Uh, you could die very easily. And the fact that that has been done really makes me mad because that, that to me is fraud. And, and fraud towards vulnerable people who are highly at risk, what I view as a you know, deadly uh, illness. And so... It has a lot to answer for as an industry. What um, there was a, a part of I know so little about like the FB, FDA drug development process, and there was a part I found really surprising about how after a drug is approved, drug companies basically like stop really doing their jobs in terms of like tracking drugs effects and and safety and stuff. And you said the government should take on a more direct role on that. How is it that 
this like very important task once you're drugged through and you know you're going to be able to make some money on it they're just not sort of allowed to like not really track it much from there not in a serious way could you explain that a little bit yeah so the fda's you know the fda can only do what it's authorized to do by congress and you know starting now quite a while ago 30 40 years ago congress shifted the fda more and toward uh towards serving the industry rather than serving and, and this is, was, you know, part of what came in with it, made it sort of a client, you know, where, where the companies pay a user fee, for example, which sort of tends to orient you to the needs of your client. But as part of that, you know, when a drug is approved by the FDA and the FDA thinks this might have some, some damaging effects that weren't available, we need to follow it in practice. And if we find those damaging effects, we need to develop what are called risk evaluation management systems where you train you know, prescribers, here's how to do this. But the FDA, rather than doing that, the power it has is to ask the industry to do it. And, um, you know, technically it is a mandate, but practically speaking, the industry uh, sometimes doesn't do those studies at all, but they do them late, or they do them and don't share the data, or they, they uh, do them so badly there's no way they could detect an effect if it were there. And then the risk of evaluation tools, training tools they developed have no evidence to change, change the product. Now, this doesn't surprise people on the commission because you're basically saying, you know, you're asking an industry, please find evidence that you should make less money. Please, <laughs> please train people not to use your products. Right. Much. Of course, they're not going to do that. And, you know, so that model has failed. And you feel like you need to give that power back to the FDA or another agency. Say, look, the public needs to know. And that means you have to have the studies designed and conducted by someone who does not have a financial interest in finding a particular interest. That's, um, it's just crazy they can get away with not <laughs> – so that the FDA just sort of asks them, like, pretty please, would you run these studies? And they, they just don't, and that's just fine? Yeah. Well, you know, theoretically, you know, the FDA could say, fine, we're pulling that drug from the market, but they've never done it. Uh, and they probably terrified of doing it, giving the power of the industry. I mean, one of the findings we point out, which was a study by the Center of Public Integrity – uh, and I think Associated Press, is at the state level over a decade, the industry spent $880 million, this is the whole pharmaceutical industry, on lobbying and donation campaigns. And groups trying to resist opioid prescribing spent $4 million. That was one of my questions. It's a ratio of, I think, 220 to 1. It's just astonishing. Yeah. 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 And there are more pharmaceutical lobbyists in Washington probably than there are people in the Congress. So if you're an FDA and you think, okay, this company has blown us off as we keep asking, you know, them to monitor whether or not, you know, whatever to celebrate is hurting people. Um, and we could pull it from the market, but then instantly, of course, the company will go to the Congress and the Congress will call a meeting with the FDA and they could get beaten up. You know? and, and, and one of the stories we tell there, which was broken by Washington Post in the 60 Minutes, is, you know, when the DEA tried to call out distributor companies, that were sending millions and millions of pills to teeny little towns in, in states like West Virginia, where I'm from. The companies just went to their friends in Congress, who may have given a lot of money and got a law passed, taking the power away from the DEA to do that. Uh, end of discussion. So if you're running FDA, you have to think about that. Like, if I actually use this power I allegedly have, will the blowback be so great that I will regret it? Um, we got a couple people in the queue. Mateo, what is up? Hey, I have kind of a uh, a curveball question here, um, and I, I think it has two it has two answers. Uh, so, if, if you accept the uh, the precept 
that um, vaccine hesitancy in response to this last Delta wave uh, since like July or so, if you if you buy the the, the idea, um, this is not talking about Omicron, where I think the vaccines are, you know, don't make as much difference to lethality. But between June and December, there was a very, very big difference in counties that were more or less anti-vax and more or less enthusiastic uh, vaxed up, uh, including if you really did the research, Miami actually vaxed up very well, despite having uh, a lot of infection in the first wave. So it wasn't just the, the normal big blue cities that, that vaxed up. Uh, if you buy the idea that um, uh, news programming, uh, generally news narrative programming, uh, helped encourage people not to vax up, and that directly killed 70, 80, 90, 100,000 Americans, uh, you know, a lot of people were dying around the Great Lakes region a couple months ago, um, you know, a few hundred each day uh, in, in the Great Lakes states because of that Delta wave. Uh, if you buy that idea, would you say that something like Fox News theoretically might have the same kind of liability towards the public that Purdue Pharma has in terms of what they did with Oxy? Wow, that's a great question. Um, and it takes me into law. And I wish I had one of the lawyers on our commission here to answer that. I don't. I don't really know. As an ethical I mean, question, it is, for your personal yeah, life, well, you know. Is it okay? Yeah, no, it is not, not okay to spread information that kills people. Just, just like I don't like it when people say, stop taking Suboxone, take cannabis. Of course, I don't like it when people say the vaccines are a fraud, don't take them. Uh, and then people die. That's absolutely horrible. Whether it would be the same, I think the, the slight difference is, at least between the two, is that Fox was there before um uh, you know, it has an independent existence, whereas some of these grassroots groups didn't. They were really just created entirely by the industry and funded 100 percent by them or almost 100 percent by them. So it may not be the same legally. I do want to pick up on one other point, though, um, which is I'm so glad you brought up the issue of trust, because one of the things we point out in the commission is trust in doctors has dropped a lot in the last 30, 40 years. And that part of that may be due to the opioid crisis. You know, you have people who buried their kids yeah. and who got their opioids because a doctor said you need to take this after your back injury or your ankle injury or your sports injury um, and that'll make you better and then you know a year later they're burying their child and that one part of the solution to this is doctors need to regain the trust of their patients and we say one way to do that is to be the leaders of um, intelligent opioid prescribing not not always uh, digging in their heels which in some cases they have um, you know because doctors love their autonomy and I understand that I work in a medical school but um, it, it, that, that doctors need to say, look, uh, we screwed up and be honest about it. Look, we, we screwed up and we need to do better. And we are going to take the lead to do better rather than be browbeaten into it by people outside of medicine. And some doctors are doing that, but we'd like to see them all. That's a really interesting point about the trust thing, because I've just I, I don't know. I think a lot about um, where America is headed in terms of the what feels like a nose diving in trust of institutions. And I, I hadn't thought of that example. It's a very sad one. Um, Colin, what is up? Hi, Jesse. Hi, Keith. Um, I just w was curious um, what has changed since the opioid crisis um, or opioid epidemic to um, the way that the vaccines have been handled that gives you more confidence um, in, in our medical institutions now. Um, Essentially, um, uh, I imagine that there's there's good reason for you to have more trust in 
in the yeah. transparency for the um, for the effects of the vaccines. I was just curious um, if there are some concrete uh, reasons you could point to for that. Yeah, that's a really good question. We do cite some data, and I'm pretty sure it's by the Pew Foundation on trust and the impact of the COVID, and there's good news and bad news. The good news is that trust in medicine went up during COVID, probably vaccines, but also I think just a lot of heroic doctors, you know, some literally losing their lives to try to take care of patients, but that it went up mainly in blue parts of the country. So it, unfortunately, trust in medicine has become another divide, uh, and that may, um, you know, bedevil us as, uh, just as it bedevils us with uh, COVID, may bedevil us in some sense trying to resolve the opioid crisis. Gotcha. I know um, Pfizer was a company that went from like the bottom 10% in public trust to the top 10% in public trust over the past three years. And I was just wondering if that was just public messaging or if um, or if anything policy-wise has changed? Well, I, I think there's two, th- th- this report in Pew was of doctors. And mm. what I would bet you is that most people's – it's kind of like a lot of things that you say, what do you think of Congress? And people say what they think. And, but the, what they really – say, what about your congressperson? Oh, well, they're very different. You know, I know I know her. I know him. And so I think the, the question probably for a lot of people, what do, what do I think of my doctor? Versus what do I think of the American Medical Association as a whole? What do I think of, you know, the state state board of medicine? And, you know, that relationship being strong is really important, to, to, you know, because it's that person that you're going to ask for help for. Like, you know, if you are using heroin or you got, you're got you stuck on the vitamin medication, you know, the person you would hope to disclose to is say, look, doc, I'm scared. i got a real problem. I need to tell you. It's very risky to do with deeply stigmatized condition. And so it's really that trust in that specific individual position is what we need uh, and we do not always have. Hmm. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jamile, is it? I'm going to make sure I'm getting your name right. Hey. Hi there. Uh, I wanted to ask you um, about uh, something that's a little more related to uh, the opioid crisis and some of what we're seeing in like San Los Angeles. Um, I get the general impression that some of the uh, policies that we've been pursuing in the area of uh, housing first and um, In a, the area of housing first hasn't haven't been as effective as we like, and that it's been really difficult to um, sort of help people make that second step from um, in some sort of housing into uh, recovery and back into mainstream society. Um, I was wondering if uh, I'm completely mistaken, or uh, what your opinion on that is. Thank you. I'm going to repeat that. I'm not sure everyone could hear it. So what, what I, I heard the caller saying is uh, talking about housing policy, for example, housing first, which is where you try to get somebody who's homeless into a house, you know, beyond everything else. You don't put any contingencies on it. And is that helping or hurting? And what's the impact of that with addiction? So it, I think that's right. Is that what you yeah. Yeah. I th- I, I, it sounded like he was skeptical of it. And this is a very big idea among some lefty politics types that like, 
tell me if I have this right, Keith, but I think the philosophy is like, the problem is they're homeless. They might have other drug problems. They might have other crime problems, but like you need to get them into stable housing. And then hopefully that will bring them in contact with the system enough to deal with that other stuff. But you can't really then like kick them out of housing for smoking pot or using drugs. Yeah. Okay. So um, one couple things here. One is that homelessness is not a type of person. It is a state into which many people may fall. Uh, when the economy is awful, um, tons of people may become homeless who have no individual problems whatsoever. Um, in, in macroeconomic forces, you could think of it sort of like musical chairs. You know, it determines how many slots there are. And that's housing policy, that's how, whether unemployment is up, up and down, whether the economy is hot or cold. And then there's a question of, well, that, that explains why anyone is homeless, but why is any particular individual homeless? And that often has to do more with their individual abilities and individual problems and challenges. So if, for example, rents are high and the market is tight and so i have to get a first and last housing deposit together and also maybe have to convince the roommate or several roommates that i would make a good roommate and i'm addicted to meth that's extremely hard for me to do so i'm going to be i'm going to be one of the people who there's not a chair there for and i'm going to be out um housing first works very well for people who are you know just homeless you know they don't have any individual problem it works pretty well for people who have serious mental illness um, it's a lot more complicated for people who have addiction. Um, I have taken care of people who had a house. Just leave out details, but someone who was addicted to methamphetamine and would not go back into his apartment because he was convinced that uh, there were people in the walls spying him all day long. And oh, just, God. And he had a place to live. He was a middle-class person. Um, eventually, we were getting you know, taken care of. But... Um, that is not a problem that is solved by housing because this person had it. You also see people who are kicked out of their house. Their families you know, can't take it anymore, particularly if there's violence. And it's not, they're, they're not really homeless. If they could get into recovery, they could move back in with their families, have the room back or have whatever. Back. But um, they can't because of substance use. And that's why it's important in the portfolio of everything you do to include uh, things like Oxford houses, which are houses where people live or in recovery, and you can stay there as long as you want, as long as you don't break two rules, you aren't violent, you don't use drugs and alcohol. And those programs have a really good uh, 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 record of its success. The general thing to remember, if, if, you know, I, I think the same people would say housing first for everybody would also say, if I said, do you believe in diversity? They'd say, yes, I believe in diversity. <laughs> Almost people are diverse. They right. need different things. So when you start saying always or never with huge groups of people, and there's hundreds of thousands of uh, homeless people in California, um, and you know you you are ignoring diversity. For some people, it is perfect; it is life-saving, and for other people, it will not solve the problem. So a good system will have different options that match the diversity of the population. That made me think of another thing that I'm um, curious about, Keith, which is. We often hear that like one of the root causes of crime is a lack of uh, mental health resources and that we shouldn't have more policing. We should have more mental health resources. In cities like New York City, it strikes me as unlikely that there's literally – there just aren't resources available to a given person with a mental health problem. But I could also see them having – a lot of obstacles to them fully taking advantage of whatever's available. What What's the – for like a, a overall wealthy, quote-unquote, successful city like New York City, should I buy the line that there's just not access to mental health or, or do you think it's it's more complicated than that? So, I mean, one of the things that's happened with the opioid crisis, it happens with any crisis, is 
people come out and say, we will never resolve this until, and then they list the thing they always list, until we right. cap methane admissions, have, have a minimum wage of $15 and make peace with China. And, and when you do that, you are effectively saying we will never solve this problem because we will never get a constituency to, together that agrees with any one person's ideas about redesigning the entire world because we all have different ideas how to do that. So those, those kinds of solutions are never workable practically, even if they were true, even if you had the wisdom, I can redesign the world, and then the opioid crisis would go away. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of dubious of root cause analysis in general is, is how it is how it is employed because it often is just this thing just makes you despair. You know, we will never do this until everything else is fixed. Whereas with crime, with mental health, Hey, Keith, I think you uh, cut out for a minute. Can other folks hear me? Throw me an emoji if you can still hear me or a thumbs up or whatever. Hmm. All right, let's, uh, we'll give Keith a minute to see if he can come back. I'm going to send him a quick message. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear his critiques of sort of the root cause thing because, um, hey, I think we lost you. Want to try to... Leave room. Sorry, I know this is very fascinating for you guys. I've sort of noticed that, like, we need to focus on root causes. There's obviously, like, a smart version of that if um, if the alternative is just, like, locking everyone up. But there, it, it does seem to sometimes be used to, like, derail conversations or to derail more, um, you know, complicated approaches. Um yeah, unfortunately, I'm unable to hear Keith at the moment. Um, give me a thumbs up. Sorry, there's weird text up going on. Give me a thumbs up if if you also cannot hear Keith. <laughs> Sorry, it's getting weird. I got a thumbs up with a heart. I'll take that as accurate. Um, yeah, so we might have to just about wrap it up here unless I can get uh, Keith back, which is unfortunate. Uh, unless anyone has any other general questions on whatever, I can take a question or two while we wait for him to come back um, on any subject. Um, but right, remove him from speakers and put him back. All right, let's see if that works. Uh, all right. Uh, Jamal, do, do you still have, um, didn't mean to cut you off. Can you hear me? Anyone, I think it is just me. Um, I wonder if you like more about health first. Hey, unfortunately, uh, I, I, you, yeah, I, you, I, you sound really distant. Uh, can you just get your mic closer to your face? Oh, wait. We, I think we got Keith back. Let me bring him back on. Uh, Keith, are you able to unmute yourself and talk? Uh, there we go. Yeah, me. Uh, Jamal, go ahead. I'll ask your question. We'll see if we can get Keith on. Yeah, this this can either be a general question for you or a uh, follow up for Keith. Um, yeah, with housing first, there's a really unproductive debate uh, that sometimes goes on where it seems like one side says um, we have to protect the housing first policy and the other side says that doesn't work. And it's like watching people have a debate over the best way to put out a fire. Is it uh what we're currently using, or is it to let uh, the building just burn down? 
And so I was going to ask Keith if he thinks it would be more productive for us to like focus on programs that sort of extend um, housing first that work on coming up with a second step after people are housed, or if there might be some alternative that might be uh, better and more useful. So I am back, I think. Can you hear me? Yep. Terrific. Welcome back. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what permanent supported housing does, like right here in my the county where I live, say for people who have serious mental illness, it's not just housing. You know, they put in a place and there's a social worker who checks on them and makes sure, for example, like, you know, the, the electric bills are paid and that they, you know, know how to, um, you know, uh, take care of themselves and they make sure they have enough food and all that kind of thing and, uh, you know, help them apply for a job or whatever it is they want to do. So that that stuff is all really important. And the, and the part about housing first is true is that once someone's in a room, you know, and you know where they're going to be and they know where they're going to be day to day, it's easier to do all those things. Um, so it's there's nothing wrong with it for populations that will stay there, um, but it doesn't work well for populations that won't stay there or will turn the room into a uh, a uh, drug dealing or drug drug using uh, collective or will do things that are frightening and violent that cause them to be thrown out either by their neighbors or by by their own um, their own sort of, um, you know, drug related uh, you know, delusions like that, that, that case I mentioned. With that person, so it, it, it's it's very it's very easy to get into simple things. It's kind of like when people say, "Is life about the structures we're in, or is it the choices we make?" Just like, but you know, grown-ups should not have those kinds of arguments. Obviously, both those things matter. Obviously, you know, people need housing; they need other things too. It's a useful environment to have, and yet uh, for some people, it it doesn't work. It's not enough, and we have to try something else. It shouldn't be that hard to be flexible, but we do have a hard time. I think oftentimes in our our political debate, acknowledging nuance. Yeah, it it reminds me of just like a lot of complicated policy debates and a lot of wicked problems where like people just, I don't know. I think there's a very human tendency to latch on to one idea or to one policy and to just ignore the actual. uh, Yeah. Do you you know about affective simplicity and that kind of research by people like Paul Slovic? This is is this basically the idea that we're drawn to simpler ideas rather than more complicated ones? Yeah, we want to say things are good and bad. So if you tell people there's a new car, it's really fun to drive, but it's also got some risks, they will convince themselves either that the risks are overstated or the funness is overstated. Keith, this car sounds awesome. Where can I get it? Yeah, exactly. Yes, right, right. And so we want to say it's good or it's bad. And there's some other data on social psychology that would tell you that when we're aroused emotionally, we are more prone to yeah. And of course, we get aroused emotionally about, you know, opioid crisis. Hundreds of thousands of people are dying. Of course, how can you not be worked up about that? And you get into these things. And it's just great that we have Twitter to cut through all that and just really attend to nuance. <laughs> yes. Well, not only that, but we we literally have like big public policy people with respected letters next to their name trying to make people angrier and more emotional about these issues, which is also very Correct. helpful. Yeah. Correct. Yes. And rage drives media clicks, as you know. Has, has the... um. Obviously, a fair amount of what I write and talk about is like culture war stuff on the left. And, and um, you know, I'll, I'll always defend my work on that subject. But how much of this stuff affects you? Because you, you work in like, you know, you're someone who has access to the White House and you work with like very serious poly, policy people. Are you guys just sort of like floating above the Twitter nonsense or does it sometimes infect it a little bit? Yeah, I mean, mostly, yes. I mean, um, you know, I I. It, it's easy to forget that in the camp, the presidential campaign we just had, if you ranked all the, what was it, 20, 30 people ran for president across the two parties, 
if you put who how much they paid attention to Twitter, the person who came in dead last is Joe Biden, you know, president of the United States. Right. Um, and, and, and I often find that on Twitter, it's almost like it's a negative barometer of what's what's important. Um, but it can still be bruising, you know, and particularly for, you know, I thought about that with commission that's majority female and people of color, you know, whether they would be, you know, beaten up for anything. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of that, I'm glad to say. Um, but that can be intimidating. And, uh, it, you know, and also, you know, it's, it, doesn't, it does not speak, speak well of the medium, but that kind of stuff happens. It often gets ad hominem right away. Um, you know, it, it, it's not that, you know. Oh, man. Uh, give me a thumbs up if, you, if Keith just dropped out for you. All right. Um, I feel bad, but I, I think unless Keith comes back, we're just going to have to um, – Wrap it up there. It's just hard to. Keith, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can. Can you hear me? Oh, you just came back. You just dropped out for a minute. I'm sorry. You were saying um, bruising for the folks. Uh... Yeah, it can be bruising for people, and in particular, and we know that it's you know that a lot of that comes particularly for women and for people of color, um, you know, who are well represented on the commission. So I was I was a little worried about that, but there hasn't been too much of that. Um, but um, it, within, I think you know, even though some elected leaders are pretty. Uh, can be pretty extreme that way. Practically, particularly when you're sitting across the table, most of them are not like that and would like to get something done. And that's who I spend most of my time talking to uh, is, is people in office. And uh, th- and so sometimes there I feel science can carry the day or reason can carry the day in a way that it's very hard for it to, to do so, say, within mass media or on social media. What do you think about the idea of, like, trust the science, that there's this thing called science that should be trusted? Uh I, when I left the White House, I wrote a paper with a guy named Peter Piot, who's a, who, who ran UNAIDS. And we both were so sick of that phrase that we wrote an essay about, about how we hate it. Actually, the phrase we hated was evidence-based policy, which is the same sort of thing. Because what it implies is that your data can tell you what's right and wrong and what moral choices. You how have. have I not read this paper? This, is per- this would be perfect for my newsletter. Oh, well, I'll, 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 I'll send, I'll send it to you or anyone else who wants to read it. But, you know, so, you know, for example, like capital punishment. So there is, um, data show, you know, a a data debate about does it reduce crime? Does it increase crime? But if it increased crime, you could still say, well, I'm against it or I'm for it because I just think it's right or wrong. You know, you can't say, well, the data made me put this person to death. What was I going to do? My Excel chart said, you know, this had a lowered crime effect. And so, just, yeah, you know, well, people want to people want to say that think that people want to pretend that, like, when you look at a regression table, it also tells you, like, value stuff that actually can't right. be modified. That's right. And it's a way for scientists to inappropriately assume um, political authority they do not have. And when you know, and when I work with with policymakers, I always say, like, you know, I specify, look, the American people in their great wisdom have never voted for me for anything. I couldn't win a race for dog catcher. So I'm not going to tell people how to live. They have to decide how to live. What I can tell you who actually took the risk to stand up in front of a group of people say you wanted to be in office is if you pull this switch, this is what science says is going to happen. You press that button. This is going to happen. If you want that outcome, here's the way to get it. But in the end, they're going to make those decisions and answer to the public for them. And that's how it should be. And where a lot of scientists mess up is they say, well, I talked to a politician. I told him or her what to do, and they didn't do it. They didn't listen to the science. No, that means they didn't listen to a scientist who had a lot of opinions. That's not the same thing. My opinions are no better than anyone else's on how people should live. 
but it's it's much more fun to inhabit your inhabit and treat yourself as the embodiment of uh, concepts like justice and science, and say that if you if you disagree with me, you disagree with justice and science. That is fun. You can't I, deny that. It, it is fun, and and I also think it is dangerous. You know, because it really delegitimizes um, reasonable perspectives on how how we should all live. I mean, the, the, as Peter and I say in the paper. Um, if you really think the world would be better if it was run by college professors, it's about time you went to a faculty meeting. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, anything else you want to add about um, about anything, Keith? I, I really appreciate um, I, the conversation. No, I, I do too, and I appreciate people showing up, and I apologize for the technical glitches. Not a problem at all. Uh, they may well have been on my end. And uh, I would just encourage everyone in here – Keith is a great follow on Twitter. He 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 writes for um, the Washington Post sometimes and for other outlets. Just just a really, in addition to being a man, a really good, smart uh, policy mind. So I uh, highly recommend following him out on Twitter. What's your uh, what's your username on Twitter? It's just Keith and then N in the middle. It's my middle initial and then Humphreys, which is H uh, U M P H R E Y S. The the way to get the most sort of net bang for the buck here, honestly, is to unfollow me and then follow Keith. Like fill that <laughs> fill that slot with Keith. Um, Thank you very much, Keith. I'm, I'm, I can probably pull that paper, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Thank you, man. Take care. Take care, all everybody. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, yeah, I do want to do more of these interviews on a wide variety of subjects, but maybe my next one I'll just do a more general Q&A. As always, if you enjoy what I'm doing here, please spread the word about it. Get other people on call in. Get people to follow me and subscribe and like and blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. And I hope you guys uh, hope all your weeks are off to a good start and I will uh, see you again soon. Farewell.